Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. And as always, joining me, our professor of Peel in Southampton, England, Jonathan Havercroft. Uh, Jonathan, how's your weekend so far? Uh, Pretty good. We did uh, Saturday league curling uh, yesterday, so two games. And then today I was coaching the juniors and... uh, I left my charger at the rink because I was doing a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm hoping my battery will last the length of this show. What uh, what percentage are you on? Sixty four percent. It should be good. We'll be we'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right. Yeah, and hopefully so because we have a really cool guest this week. We have Stephanie Seneker the skip of Team Seneker out of, well, several different curling clubs. We'll let her tell us uh, all about it when we bring her on here in a second. Uh, She started curling in 2010, and her story is really interesting. Only started back in 2010. uh, Started, you know, started late enough in life that she did not play juniors and started on arena ice like, I did, and like a lot of you out there probably did as well. So we are very happy to welcome uh, Stephanie Seneker to the show. Stephanie, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing great, thanks. How about you two? Oh, good, Very thanks. good. So as we said, uh, you started off a little bit later in life. Um, you know, can you kind of tell people, you know, how you started with this sport, what your experience was with it before you started playing, and uh, your beginnings? Sure. Yeah, um, I don't come from a curling family. I didn't know what curling was until I saw it a little bit in the 2006 Olympics. Um, toward the end of my senior year in high school, got interested in watching it because it was puzzling. I couldn't figure out what the rules were, what they were doing, why they were yelling so much. And um, I watched it with my mom. And we actually we cheered for Team Sweden uh, that year for Annette Norberg, which was perfect. Um, but it was... Uh, it was just fascinating to me. And then I kind of forgot about it for a little bit until the next Olympic cycle uh, came in. And in 2010, I got hooked again. And so I commandeered a TV at the student union and (laughs) made sure that nobody changed it from the curling and just watched as much curling as possible and figured that if there's a Team USA, they must do it somewhere. And so I just Google searched curling and found out that uh, the nationals were coming to Kalamazoo. Uh, that March. So I decided to go down and watch and they happened to have some learn to curls going on. So I signed up, you know, paid 10 bucks, signed a waiver and went out and fell down 20 times or so and uh, had a good time. And I was hooked right off the bat. So it's maybe not a traditional start, but uh, that's how I got into it. And this was at uh, the Kalamazoo Club. Yeah, right? Wing Stadium. Yep. Back when they were... Uh... Back when they were an arena club, when did when did the Kalamazoo Club get started? I believe that club got started in 2008, so not too long uh, before the Vancouver Olympics. Um, a group, I think uh, Dean Gemmel and uh, Kent Elliott were instrumental in starting that, uh, along with a few of the other early members, got the interest going. So it's a pretty young club. 
got started on at at an arena club um and obviously obviously you were hooked uh how did you i mean how did your how did you start developing skills um in in becoming a better curler uh despite the fact that you were at an arena club where access to practice ice is very limited practice ice was pretty much non-existent because the stadium only rented um, the time to the club for just for the draw. So you had two hours, then you had to go and pull all the rocks back off and take the hacks out and, and all that stuff. So they could turn it right back to hockey ice. So there wasn't really any practice there. Um, after I'd been curling for about a year, a little bit after that, I started looking into practicing elsewhere to get better and um, inquired with some other Michigan clubs and didn't really have any luck getting practice ice and then contacted, I actually contacted the forest curling club in Ontario first. I didn't even know about the Sarnia club. And that ice maker said, uh, are you sure you'd want to drive the extra 40 minutes? There's a curling club right on the border. I said, Oh, well, thanks for telling me. I had no clue and contacted Sarnia and they said, Oh sure. Come on over and, and play. So I just started going over there like on Tuesday nights and I would just rent a sheet and throw rocks. And I stayed overnight in a really, uh, really shady motel because <laughs> it was what I could afford and then would throw rocks Wednesday morning and go home. So that's how I started developing skills, but it was just a lot of repetition. I didn't really have a coach at that point. So that like, strikes me as pretty unusual. Did you, did you have like a sports background or some other background where, <laughs> where you were kind of really driven to, to like self-motivated to practice? Because that sounds like a lot of discipline and also like speaking from experience, not many first-year arena curlers are going to start driving somewhere just to go throw rocks. So, uh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I was not the most athletic individual growing up. It's like I didn't play. I wasn't really on a lot of like traveling teams or anything like that. I played softball through high school and played a little bit of soccer. I had one year of football, which was fantastic. Um, but was not. I wasn't a col a college athlete or anything like that. So. I'm not entirely sure why I got so hooked on curling to the point where I thought I need to drive an hour and a half across an international border <laughs> to go throw stones for two hours. Um, but it just, it really, I don't know. It just, it really sucked me into the game. I was in love with the strategy and just felt like this is, there are so many moving parts. I'm also a little OCD. I think that might, <laughs> might help me. <laughs> That might explain some things because I will sit there and I will try to figure something out and try to make it better and not stop until it's done. So I think that that was part of the reasoning behind that. But no, it, it's not normal. I, I don't think anyone could ever accuse me of being a normal person. And that's fine. Was there a point where it clicked that you thought I might have a future in this? I might, you know, my my skills are equal to the people that I'm playing against. I might be able to play this competitively. I think the first time it really clicked for me was there was like a one day kind of a skills clinic delivery analysis sort of thing in Fort Wayne when they were still in the arena um, before they got their dedicated club. And I'd gone down there and uh, Greg Eigner had uh, this clinic going. He had an iPad and was recording deliveries and stuff and and giving people feedback and things like that and he gave me some really positive feedback that really stuck with me and said no you could you you should keep practicing you're for as long as you've been curling which at that point was probably a year and a half or something like that um you know you could 
you could go somewhere with this. And I really took that to heart. So I just thought I need to go throw some rocks. And that's what I wound up doing for the next several years. So fast forward a couple years, 2013. um, And Jonathan, I believe you were kind of instrumental in this event getting started. 2013, there's a arena championship just for clubs like Kalamazoo and Oklahoma Curling Club, where we were at, where you know, it's a national championship for clubs with those same limitations. Um, how did you, you know, you played in it uh, as the skip for Kalamazoo's team. What was the process for, um, you know, was there a play down process for Kalamazoo or was it a, a selected team? And what do you remember from uh, competing uh, at that championship? At that point, um, if I recall correctly, there we didn't have like an intra club play down on the women's side. Um, there really weren't, and maybe still aren't, nearly as many uh, female curlers as as male in the Kalamazoo club. And I think that goes for a lot of clubs, maybe. But so we just I talked with a few of the other uh, ladies that I'd curled with before in Bond Spiels, and so maybe you, you know, let's let's put together a team and see if we can represent our club. And it just kind of came together uh, like that. It was an exciting thing to, to feel like you know, we're going to take this a step further and get into the more competitive game instead of just traveling around to fun spiels. So it was sort of a, I kind of want to say kind of a spur of the moment thing, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very different. It was a brand new thing for us. Was that your first time um competing in in something like that had you had you just been in kind of the social spiels before yeah I think I had played on some of the USWCA five and under events and and things like that but to my recollection I think that was the first thing that I really competed in I don't think I'd tried to get into mixed curling or or competitive women's or anything by that point so that was yeah that was the most competitive uh event that I'd ever participated in by that point and the, the Kalamazoo Club had a lot of success at those early arena championships. The first year, the men won, and I believe you won third. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That's correct. We, uh, I believe we came up against the ladies from uh, Dallas-Fort Worth in, in the bronze match. And uh, yeah, we had a, a real good game and managed to take home bronze, which felt really good. And it was exciting to cheer on the men, too. I remember we were on the side whooping <laughs> making some noise during the last end when it looked like they were going to take it home. That was really cool. And then the next year you came back and you won it. So was there, I mean, after that first year, was there motivation to, to come back that next year and, um, you know, really work at, at improving your game or was there anything between those two championships that you guys did as a team to get ready? we Played a little bit. We had a lineup change between the, the two years um, in the front end. And after getting kind of the taste of, of winning with the bronze, I definitely wanted to come back and do better and wanted to work actually mostly on the mental side of, of the game um, from my perspective, from, from the Fort Wayne Arena Nationals to the ones in Lansing. And it was cool also that the the second one was in Lansing. That's kind of hometown territory for me. Um, I grew up just a little bit outside of Lansing. So I had friends and family there watching. So that was motivation too. wanted to, to bring something home for them as well. 
what do you remember about those early arena championships? Because I, I was at the first one. I was not at the one in Lansing, but I remember the first one, you had a bunch of people who weren't used to these highly, supposed to be highly competitive events. And I remember the USCA people kept telling us this is a championship, not a bond spiel at least 20 times in the weekend I was there. But right. really, <laughs> it was, it seemed like it was, it was part party, part convention and part support group for talking about ice conditions. I think that's really apt, honestly. The first one, yeah, that was, that was very different. You had people from all different arena clubs, some with really, really brutalized conditions, some with better. And then we're playing on this, you know, it's an arena surface technically at the, um, at the Fort Wayne and, and Lansing. It was, it was still arena, but it was better arena ice than we had ever played on. And, and it was sort of like just a, a social gathering in a, in a lot of ways, but I think some, some teams took it more competitively than others. Um, like Darcy's team from the Dakota club, at least speaking on the women's side, um, them and, and the Dallas Fort Worth ladies and and uh, Sarah Walsh's rank from California. There were there were definitely teams that were a little more competitive minded than others. And the other other than that, it was kind of getting to know people from all over the country. It was a really neat event that brought people together from both coasts, from east and west, and everywhere in between, north and south. So it was kind of like a convention. <laughs> I think that's a really good way to think about it. I think Lansing felt a little more. To me, it felt a little more competitive, but maybe that's just looking through my own lens. But I'm trying to think back to the event as a whole, and I just felt a little more focused like on the competitive side versus the social side, I think. It was also interesting because every, every team was really happy to be there, um, but also wanted it to be their last time there because they wanted to get dedicated ice. Mm-hmm. And eventually that happened for Kalamazoo, correct? That was uh, just a just a couple of years after your championship, right? Yeah, no, that's that's true. They um, Wing Stadium and the Kalamazoo Curling Club kind of negotiated. I think it's a five year contract for the club to have one of the sort of auxiliary ranks uh, permanently, minus a few weekends where there are special events held where the arena needs. Uh, that facility for some other purpose but beyond that it's no longer used for hockey it's just for the curling club and that's that's actually been really beneficial I think for both the club and uh, Wings Event Center I think it's worked out really well that they get all those hours of use now the members in the curling club can go and practice there's more access to leagues and more flexibility they now get to hold uh, bond spiels uh, like the, the beer spiel that happened just recently uh, just the previous weekend which was a lot of fun. So it's 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 worked out as a good relationship. Um, but it's also nice that the event center kind of takes care of the maintenance of things and the, the club just gets to exist within it. So it's a good partnership. Do you think the arena clubs that are popping up in non-traditional curling markets are getting enough attention from the USCA or enough, uh, enough help from the USCA in helping to, to grow their clubs? Um, that's a good question. I don't know, uh, on the financial side, I know that there are, you know, grant programs that you can apply for, like the Darwin Curtis grant program and things like that. Apart from that, I don't know how much help is available from the USCA financially or in terms of, of promotion and, and visibility, visibility. If there are more, I don't know if there's, if the answer is to do more local promotion within the cities or do more sort of arena curler 
specific events, not just a national championship, but maybe other bond spiels or things like that. Um, I think it could certainly be better, but I, I don't have a solid answer as far as how the USCA itself um, can help those clubs out. And then I guess as, as someone who developed from the arena curling world, what advice do you have to, you know, arena curlers out there who are just getting started and have kind you know, have gotten hooked on the sport and want to get better and want to get to a level where they're, uh, where, you know, they're playing competitively. Mm-hmm. I'd say it, it, it really benefits to just get out there and throw as many rocks as you can. If you have, uh, members in the arena club that have curled before. I know a lot of these clubs that pop up, they get uh, maybe Canadian, you know, expats who have, have come to the U.S. and and maybe are feeling a little nostalgic for curling, and so they help start a club or or folks who have had dedicated club experience and moved to a new town and now they're part of an arena club. I think if you look for those those people who have more curling experience. Um, the curling community is is so fantastic. People are so kind and usually willing to help. If you find people like that nearby, you know, and, and just ask them for advice or, or have them throw stones with you or, or help you out with your delivery or things like that, you're, you're going to find some help, you know, locally. And then if you want to go even farther, find a nearby dedicated club and start working there. Go to clinics, go to bond spiels, just throw as many rocks <laughs> as you can, you know, as much as your time allows and, and your lifestyle allows and go from there. But it'll be a fun ride no matter what. Did um, and so also you kind of got a little bit of a late start. So I'm wondering, uh, like, like you, did you slide right into the skip roll through the arena kind of nationals process, or or how did you come up to how did you kind of develop your skipping skills over the years? I think that was the the big part of it, really. And I'm trying to remember why <laughs> that happened because I think I played, I didn't skip in any leagues at that point in time i played vice for uh a gentleman by the name of garnet Ekstrand of the kalamazoo curling club and he was a big mentor for me early on as well helped give me feedback on how i was throwing and, and strategy and and things like that so that that i think was the beginning of preparing me to to play a back-end role on the curling team but uh with how our team came together for the first arena nationals. I'm, I don't really recall how I wound up in the skips role, honestly, <laughs> but apparently it seemed like a natural fit because we did it again the next year. So that's, that's all I have on that subject. I really don't know. Was it, was it just a case that you, you were then the person who was like the skip and then after you, you kind of just felt natural in that role then, or? Uh... I think so. Yeah. I think it just, it, it felt like a good fit. I like, making strategic decisions i guess that's a big part of it as well um i like chess i like games like that where you're trying to see multiple moves and scenarios and patterns so I think that's i think that's a big part of it as well yeah no definitely i think it's it's kind of a cause it's a it's a hard position to find someone kind of for right uh even just in coaching with juniors it's like you've got to have someone who's got a good tactical mindset but also is pretty calm under pressure in terms of making the pressure shots too and that's uh this, you know, there's a big debate in coaching circles, are skips born or are they made? And, uh, you know, it goes back and forth on that. But I'm always curious about someone who kind of se- seems to develop into a skip pretty quickly. So it seems like you did. So. 
Yeah, I think some in some aspects, it, it seemed like a really natural thing. Some people may be more comfortable off the bat in that kind of role where you know your shots are the ones that finish up the end, and, and there's a bit more pressure, and and you're also dictating the shots for the, the rest of your teammates. And um, I think part of it though is is also developed. I don't think it's just an innate thing like you're just born for this role. It takes work, um, especially on the mental side of things. I know that I've changed a lot in how I've performed, you know, in, in that kind of role over the last several years and improved, you know, trying to keep my brain calm, but also retain as much information as possible. It just takes a lot of repetition too. So it's a little bit of both. How did you transition from, you know, an arena curler, mainly going to social spiels to getting into the more competitive environment? I'm trying to think back to how this started starting to come over here to Ontario was, was a big part of that. Um, the Sarnia club, apart from being an eight sheet club, a big club, there's, there are a lot of really good curlers um, in this club that I started to get to know and, and ask for feedback from, and that includes the ice maker, Don Bork. Um, he's played, he represented Prince Edward Island at the Briar. I'm going to say in the mid eighties, 85 or 86, somewhere in there. And he would start, you know, he would come over and give me pointers and sometimes I would uh, ask him for lessons and that really helped me out. And then also meeting Amelia, which was kind of a, a chance meeting um, at the Chicago Curling Club. I was curling with a mutual friend of, of hers and we talked and this was shortly before she came back to Michigan. And then we did, we decided to curl together um, in a fun spiel in Forest, Ontario, and we wound up winning the, the women's side of it. And she really took me under her wing um, as sort of a, a competitive mentor because she hadn't played all that much longer than I had. I think she started curling in 2008, but she really got into the competitive stuff early as she has she's grown up as a competitive athlete. So she was a, actually a really big influence on me getting better. And uh, we decided to do a play down in Ontario, kind of a mid-level club play down and, and had fun with that. And she connected me with more competitive players in the U.S. And we wound up going on from there to curl with Deb McCormick and play in my first nationals in 2015. So, so she's really the big connecting factor there. Was it tougher for you to find teams and get connections like that because you hadn't played juniors and didn't have those previous connections from playing at, at, at a younger age? I think so. Honestly, it was... When I think about it, that was such a chance meeting that she happened to be at the Chicago Curling Club, and I happened to be, to be playing with someone that she knew and was good friends with at the time. If I hadn't met someone who had the, the willingness to help me out and connect me with other people, um, I honestly don't know at what point I would have gotten to, to sort of break into the competitive scene, if, if ever. Um, there aren't a lot, especially on the women's side, I don't think there are nearly as many competitive curlers kind of in the Michigan, you know, Indiana, Ohio, right here in the Midwest. There are so many in Minnesota and Wisconsin and some out east and, and way out on the West Coast. And I didn't really know anybody. I hadn't traveled far enough or, or been in those circles to know those, know those people. So it, it's, I think it is significantly more difficult to, to get started in, in competitive curling um, if you're coming from 
an area here where there's not that much of a, a curling population compared to other states. But I'm hoping that we're, we're able to turn that around in the next few years as the popularity of the sport grows. So Amelia is now one of your teammates. Um, I know you briefly told this story on the Extra Extra In podcast. Uh, and if anyone hasn't heard that, go listen to the interview with Team Sinekar that they did on the Extra Extra In podcast. It's great. It's um, a weird one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got really weird. <laughs> it did. But how? Um, just uh, let everyone know, how did uh, the team, the new team for this season, uh, get formed? Um, and were you looking to skip or did that just kind of happen and how it all came together coming up to this season? Yeah, it was sort of a weird combination of things. Um, I curled with Jess, Jessica Schultz and Courtney George and Jordan Moulton um, and Allison Pottinger the previous year, the last couple of years. And that team at the end of the season decided uh, that we probably weren't going to go for another year. So I was a free agent and Amelia hadn't curled competitively in women's, but was looking to get back in it after a few years off after we curled with Debbie. And we did mixed nationals with uh, Sean Murray and Dan Weza. And during playdowns, we played against Maya Willards on another one of the GLCA teams. And we were really impressed with her both on and off the ice. And well, let's we're, we should keep an eye out, you know, for her. She's she's got some some real good skills and and great potential to be a really good player. And then we went on to nationals and we played against Rebecca Andrew on Team New York. Uh, in the round robin, and then in the uh, the bronze medal game, and we were chatting with her, and it turned out her team was was parting ways as well. So we all kind of looked at each other and went, "Well, we have three players here, <laughs> right here in the locker room. All we need is one more." And uh, we reached out to Maya, and she was really excited, which we were really excited to have her too. It was it was perfect. So that made four, and knowing that we were probably going to need a spare here and there for some of the events. We looked for a fifth player and uh, we found Elizabeth Demers, who was fantastic. Love having her on board as well. So it was, it was kind of a, a spur of the moment thing, but it, it worked out really well that we were all, most of us were all playing mixed. So that's, that's the most of it anyway. So when you guys came together uh, and started getting ready for this season. What what goals did you have in mind? Obviously, making nationals, but anything, any, you know, were there any goals other than other than that coming into the year? Yeah, we set nationals. Winning nationals is is the ultimate goal. Um, not just not just showing up, but uh, ultimately, we we would like to win and be the team that represents uh, the USA at the World Championships in Denmark. That was that's the ultimate. And then stepping back from that, you know, we, we certainly want to medal at, at at nationals and beyond that, we're hoping to qualify at you know two or three events on the tour. And so far, we've we've qualified in two events, so we've met those expectations early on, especially without uh, team practice together until this weekend. And that wasn't even with the full team, so we're still still uh, trying to figure things out, but. Our, our goal was to try and be as consistent as we could be early and get enough points that if we did win nationals, we could be the team that goes to Worlds. And then we also found out about the uh, incentive, the performance incentive that the High Performance Program is putting out this year. Um, I believe it's $5,000 for the top non-high performance team on the order of merit ranking by the end of the year. 
that's a, a big carrot on the stick for us as well. That's definitely on the goal list. So it's kind of a, a chase for points, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's, is it 40 points or it, it's, I think I read this right. It's 40 points or top 100 in the current year order yeah. of merit to qualify. Basically that makes you qualified to go to worlds. Is that correct? Yeah, there's their performance thresholds. They they get a little higher. The bar raises each year uh, in the competitive or in the uh, sorry the Olympic cycle uh, in the order merit. So it starts out as like top 100, and then I think it's like top 60, and then top 40 for the next couple of years, um, or a set number of points. And at this point, we're we're well within the top 100. I think we were in the 60s for the year to date uh, at this point. So if we maintain in that range or preferably uh, get even higher then we will be set for uh, going to worlds should we win nationals. Also correct me if I'm wrong here to qualify for nationals without having to go through the challenger round. It's the, for the women's, it's the top four in the order of merit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Top four. And we are currently fourth place. So it's in, it's the same situation. As long as we maintain that, that ranking behind the high performance teams, then we should be right in without having to go to Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And that kind of, that it kind of puts you in a difficult position, right? Cause you almost have to root against your country, you know, the, the other people from your country so that you can, be in that top four slot slot and root against those high performance teams, right? Yeah, I, I don't like to think of it like that, but it is you do kind of have that sigh of relief after each week when you check the updated order of merit standings and you look because you know the other teams are playing somewhere else. So you look to see, did they qualify? No? Okay, then then we're still <laughs> okay. I'd rather, it, it's better if we just do more winning ourselves and then we don't have to root against anybody. Um, but it's it's true. You you do kind of keep an eye. You know, if you're already there, you keep an eye over your shoulder to see if anybody is creeping up on you. And if you're not, then you're you're clawing to to get in front of teams that are already ahead of you. So it is it is kind of a weird um, situation where you're pitted against teams in your own country. But I think that's the same in in any of these competitive countries now um, with the tour. It's it's really forced. Uh, teams from the same country to, to scrap during the, the year for, for placement, for rankings during the playdowns and, and Olympic implications as well. So as a self-funded team, how did you guys set up your schedule in order to you know go after those points to not have to go to the challenger round and be eligible for worlds? Uh, and then was mm-hmm. it difficult to get in? Is it difficult to get into some spiels? Like did that affect your schedule making as well? In our case, a lot of our schedule planning revolved around the location based on four out of the five of us being in Michigan and the other uh, in New York. Ontario was kind of the natural choice for, for most of our events because it's, it's drivable for everybody. You're about three hours from anywhere you want to be for playing in Toronto or Oakville or Kitchener. Um, and the, the strength of field is is pretty good and really good in some events and and pretty good in all of them. So as far as gathering points and playing against good teams that'll make us get better, that that was the easy choice for us. We decided to do about four or five events at the beginning of the year. Um, We figured that was was manageable 
for everybody. Um, time off can be uh, an issue, especially since we, we had already, uh, most of us had already done mixed playdowns at the least. And then three of us had done mixed nationals, which requires an entire week off of work. So that's a limiting factor if you're doing both mixed and women's. So we didn't go super hard on the schedule this year. We just decided to see, because this is all an experiment, we're a first year team, just do a handful of events and, and see from there. Um, the one that we're doing in a few weeks in Listowel, we added later on that wasn't on our uh, original schedule. But all the Ontario spiels that we've been to have been fantastic events with really good teams and it's within easy driving distance. So that was kind of the, the main factor for us. It also sounded like early on you were also seeking out a lot of just like coaching opportunities. So it sounded like you were going to a lot of clinics early on. And then are you, are you, is your team currently working with a coach then? Yeah, we have a coach on board, uh, Clark Raven, who's also out of uh, Rochester Curling Club. So he and our vice, Rebecca Andrew, um, they work together regularly over there. He was their coach at Mixed Nationals this year as well for uh, Kit Moraldo's team out of New York. So um, he's been a good mentor for us both on and off the ice, and uh, we're glad to have him along. And so what, what kinds of things has he helped your team with? A lot of it is, is just observations he sees during, during games. He's really good at monitoring team dynamics and the pace and seeing shifts during the game, like momentum changes and, and little things that we can work on to keep things working in our favor where we, we start a little bit up and then something gets bogged down and then momentum changes and then we lose some ground and things like that. So he's a really good uh, observer of, of things like that. And he's helped us out tactically as well, but mainly I think with, with team dynamics and, and keeping things where, where we want them to be both on and off the ice. You said this team kind of, you know, came together almost at random was was team chemistry easy for you guys it seems like you guys came together um kind of naturally because you watch you guys on social media (laughs) and it seems like you're having fun (laughs) yeah we have a good time um that was that was kind of a, a big requirement i think all of us uh from talking about some past team experiences and what we were expecting in the future and we, we all wanted a team that was easy going with easy personalities and then we can work on the technical stuff and, and things will come together. But if, if we're going to do this, you know, spend the time and the money and, and the commitment, we want to make sure we're having fun with it. And I think we all were sort of looking uh, for personalities similar to our own when we're scanning the field, looking for potential players. And it's, yeah, it's come together very easily. We're different personalities in some ways, but uh, we do have a lot of fun. We all like to, we like to have little adventures on all the uh, the field trips, food adventures, and Airbnb has been an adventure in itself, mostly in good ways. And we just take everything in stride and and are able to keep things light both on and off the ice, even when stuff isn't going well. So that's been a huge bonus. Is Airbnb the best thing to happen to elite curling since the free guard zone? <laughs> um. That is a very, that's a valid point. It's right up there. It's, it's certainly helped us. Um, Traveling costs really tend to add up even for just a handful of events. The plus side is that we're not flying. Flights make things much more expensive. But if you're looking at renting a house versus uh, 
purchasing, you know, three hotel rooms, two or three hotel rooms for multiple nights a weekend. Airbnb has been has been fantastic. So we highly recommend it. So what 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 other challenges are there? Obviously, you're a self-funded team. What challenges did you guys have uh, finding sponsors and what other things are kind of unique for teams that um, aren't part of that high performance program uh, and really have to you know find their own way to get through the season? Yeah, uh, one of the challenges in terms of finding sponsorship, we all hit up a lot of local businesses or or people we knew that, you know, running their own businesses or things like that, that thought maybe they'll be able to pitch in a little bit. And we've had some good luck with um, some local sponsors, also with Jerry Gertz from Curling Zone, from the Kalamazoo Curling Club. So that's been a big boost. And of course, TESN, 12th and Sports Network, they're our, our idol sponsor. Basically, Joe and Brian have been very generous in, in helping us out too. As far as other sponsorship, it's been a little tricky because we're not all from the same area. Um, most of us are in Michigan, but we're not all curling out of the same club. We're not in the same city. And then Rebecca's in New York. So it's kind of hard for her, I think, to find sponsors who want to jump on board apart from TSN since they're a curling based group. It makes sense. But for non-curling companies, um, they kind of look at you and think, well, I don't know why we should sponsor you, <laughs> especially since we're brand new as a team this year and, and aren't one of the more visible teams like on, on tour. We're not, you know household names or anything. So that, that adds a little bit of challenge to it. But um, yeah, we've, we've gotten some good support. We're hoping to get more next year as, as we build. But I think that's, that's the main part is getting the funding and trying to match schedules. It's been tough for us, apart from the events where we play together. Um, it's tough for us to get together and, and match schedules for practice weekends and things like that, because we all have different things going on in our lives, especially since Maya's in college and then the rest of us are at different points in our lives with jobs and houses and all that stuff. I think that's the biggest challenge. Is it tough to get support from family and employers when you're, when you're trying to do this? I think it depends on individual situations. Um, for myself, I've been very fortunate. I work essentially for the family business. So I've been able to kind of dictate my own schedule to the best of my ability, which has been extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Without that, it would be really tough, I think, to to get away enough to compete, you know, at the level that uh, I'd want to be at. Um, for Maya being a, a student, I think that's that's gonna be a tough grind. And she's also curling on a junior team as well. So it's not like she wasn't busy already and <laughs> now she's doing women's too. So I don't know how she's how she's doing it, but but she seems to be main, maintaining okay. And for Rebecca, time off, um, like I said before, because of mixed doing mixed nationals uh, is a bit of a limiting factor. But we've we've been pretty fortunate as far as having employers and and family that are understanding about us, you know, being away so much. I'll give a shout out to my boyfriend Graham. We see each other like every two weeks. <laughs> kind of ships passing in the night he's playing on the Ontario tour so we're in the same boat we understand each other but we don't see each other very much are you playing mixed or mixed doubles or any other commitments are you focusing on women's this season you and your teammates yeah mostly focusing on on women's but I know um Amelia and Rebecca and I are all eyeballing mixed again uh which is gonna be in Denver which would be really cool I'd love to go out there 
and um, I think Elizabeth is playing down for clubs, and Maya's got juniors on her plate as well. So we all have some other things on our radar, or at least one other thing. I'm not looking at doubles really. I figured two two different events uh, is is maximum as far as national championships go for me this year. So. Doubles would be something to do in the future, but uh, not at this point. Just just mixed and women's, I think. So is your team taking this, um, you know, are you looking at it long term? Are you guys going to see how this year goes? I think as the year has gone on, I think we've started looking a little more long term. At first, the main thing was to see, well, if we throw these four or five people together, you know, do, does this is this going to go well or or what are we going to find? and um, off the bat, based on on what we've seen and what we've accomplished so far, we've started to think, well, if we're going to perform at this level this year, we work on certain things, we get a little bit better. Maybe next year we can qualify for the tier two Grand Slam, start getting into the more elite level of curling where we want to be and and keep climbing the ladder. So as the last few months have gone by, we've we started thinking a little more in, in long term. Do you think the USCA should be sharing more knowledge with the self-funded U.S. teams? Uh, one example, I remember someone we know went to um, one of the combines that they did, and the feedback he, back he got was, you're not a strong sweeper, but they didn't give him any mm, details as to why. Yeah. Yeah. And we really didn't find out what made a strong sweeper until Broomgate and they did the WCF right. did, did their study. You know what makes a you strong know, no sweeper one... and a legal brush head? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, is is there more knowledge that should be shared with the non-HPP programs? Yeah, I would like to see more resource sharing both online and maybe regionally because the u.s is such a, a big country geographically it's so broad and people are so spread out um you know if there's if you're holding clinics or, or combines or things in one part of the country i think you know the resources that you're using there aren't getting to everybody it'd be nice enough you know for front enders if you know we had if there were so many coaches or, or facilities around the country that maybe had the smart broom people could use that and and learn how to be more effective sweepers or, you know, regional clinics um, for both, you know, front end and back end skills, things like that. And the fitness and nutrition for aspiring competitive curlers who want to take their game to the next level and, and drills and things like that. I think all of that could be made more available to, to the non-high performance program curlers. Because um, I know when I was looking for resources online, I've, I've been able to find more things through the CCA <laughs> the Canadian Curling Association sometimes, or the Ontario Curling Association, um, than the USCA site. So I, I do think that's an area that, that we could improve in getting more information out to more people and bettering uh, curling as a whole for the United States. So with the growth that we've seen this year and hopefully in the future, what do you think that the, what do you think the potential is for, for curling in the U.S.? I think there's huge potential, to be honest, especially after this past Olympics, but with the men getting the gold medal and the women had a pretty solid performance as well. And there's getting to be so much more visibility and it, it's becoming a bit more mainstream. In, you know, NBC Sports and, you know, the Olympic Channel are, 
are airing it more often and, and there's much more access to it. I've seen it growing on a pretty substantial scale over the next five to 10 years. Um, and that includes both arena and dedicated clubs. There it seems like there are a lot of clubs, arena clubs that have started out there now you know, fundraising for dedicated ice who have already gotten dedicated ice or building new facilities or taking over warehouses. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of towns that, you know, you'll see a building and you think, yeah, but you could put a curling club in there. So I think that's, I think we're, we're headed for a pretty, pretty interesting time in the next decade or so. I think it's going to grow quite a lot and hopefully the competitive game as well at the club level. I think it's going to be really vibrant. That's going to be a matter of, can we funnel more of those players into the next level and the next level above that. I think that's going to be the big question. You know, you didn't have a junior background. Is there, you know, where, where is the USCA not looking in order to develop uh, the next generation of competitive curlers out of the U S? Um, as far as where they're not looking, cause now they've, they've got their, the, the D pool, the development pool for, for junior players. I think they're drawing some more junior players who aren't already well known, um, out of that or players that aren't from like the, the main curling populations, uh, in Wisconsin, Minnesota and such. Um, I think honestly, it, it, it may be that they're overlooking some more of the, the older the players that get into it later in life that might get into it in the end of college or maybe even beyond that in the mid-20s. Um, I think there's potential for athletes, people who are already accomplished athletes or maybe lifelong athletes in other sports that whose skills could really cross over into curling that maybe they aren't uh, recruiting at this point. But I know multi-sport athletes are are pretty adaptable in, in any plane. So that, that may be a place to, to look for a bigger development pool in the future. All right. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, do you want to just let everyone know where they can find your team, how they can follow you, follow you for the rest of the season and let everyone know who your sponsors are too? For sure. Yep. We'll be uh, at at least one more event this season. List of all, possibly the U S open. We'll see. And then certainly nationals, uh, in Kalamazoo in February. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Team Seneca, and we're also on Twitter Twitter at Team Seneca. And uh, you can follow our social media antics there. <laughs> that's that's Amelia's job, by the way. I'm, I'm going to say that's not, <laughs> I'm not responsible for what happens, but I'm sort of responsible for what happens. But she's our social media master. Um, our, we have a lot of wonderful sponsors this year. Brooms Up Curling Supplies is our equipment sponsor officially. We've got 1210 Sports Network, uh, MedNet One Health Solutions uh, is also a very generous sponsor, as well as uh, Curling Zone. Thank you, Jerry Gertz. And uh, the Kalamazoo Curling Club themselves has sponsored us as well. And Go Go Squeeze. They have been our, our nutritional sponsor. We don't have their logo on our jackets, but we've got them on our water bottles. And we would be much worse off if we didn't have all those delicious packets of applesauce that keep us fueled during games and uh, throughout events. We are giant children. Let's face it. We are giant children. Um, <laughs> maybe not so giant in my case. I'm sort of child-sized. But yeah, we uh, we do love the go-go squeeze. So they're, they're a big part of our team success as well. 
I get. Oh, actually, I do have one more question. How is there extra motivation considering this year's championship is in is in Kalamazoo? Yes, <laughs> that's a definite yes. At least um, on on the level of you know most of us being from Michigan, and especially for me, you know, coming from the Kalamazoo Curling Club originally, and and having played, been fortunate enough to play in the nationals there in, in 2015, and. Uh, I've always wanted to go back and and do better, you know, perform better uh, than we did that year. So, yeah, that's definitely an extra motivation. It's exciting to play there and have so many friends and and family and and club mates there watching and, and cheering us on. So that's that's going to be exciting. Well, if you get there, it's going to be a partisan crowd, right? Yeah, <laughs> it it might be. We'll see. There's a, there'll be a good mix. There'll be a lot of people coming in, but yeah, we'll we'll take home we'll take home field advantage. That that'd be great. <laughs> All right, we'll continue to follow Team Seneca throughout the season. Good luck to you the rest of the year. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been Rocks Across the Pond. You can subscribe uh, and please leave a review for the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Facebook. So once again, thank you to Stephanie Sineker, and we will talk to you all soon.